Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We trust in your love this morning, Heavenly Father. We thank you for it. We thank you for the incredible expression of love poured out upon us in giving the life of your Son and then in pouring out your Holy Spirit that we all may have access to you, our Creator, our loving Father. May we know this love just a little more this morning and receive it just a little more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we launched our theme for the year at both our Canning Vale and Piara Waters congregations. We don't always do an annual theme. It felt like actually we need to sit on this one over the course of 2024. The theme is Becoming... Dot, dot, dot. Dallas Willard, uh, a well-known author, uh, pastor, said this, the greatest issue facing the world today, the greatest issue facing the world today, big statement, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners is what that means, of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, being a Christian or a believer, being someone who says, yes, I trust in Jesus for salvation, doesn't automatically make us a disciple because a disciple is someone who lives constantly in the footsteps of their rabbi. Think first century Jewish culture. The disciple was someone who's, quote, covered in the rabbi's dust, always by the rabbi's side. The rabbi's ways and mannerisms and approach to life would rub off constantly on the disciple. This is what a disciple is. Being a disciple of Jesus, therefore, means to be with Jesus and therefore become like Jesus and therefore to do what Jesus did. That's the simplest way we can basically put it. So our mission, our, our purpose, our primary focus as a church is to be not just Christians, but to be disciples. The disciples thingy hopefully won't fall over behind me. And as we follow this progression of being with Jesus, becoming therefore more like Jesus than then doing what he did, we will in being disciples do what he did, which was to make disciples. That's the progression, that as we be disciples, we naturally go on to make disciples. And I laid out the challenge last week, uh, however you can put it various ways, but one way I put it was to say yes to Jesus before he asks you the questions. To say yes before he says, now I want you to, well, we're going to address this. Let's go do this. To say yes first and then say, what's the question? To approach becoming more like him, not in the specific way that you and I would choose. I want to become like you by loving the poor. I want to become like you, Jesus, by being spirit-filled. I'll set the agenda, but that's not Becoming a disciple of Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus is letting him call the shots and him set the direction. Uh, this, this graphic um, that's sort of behind some of our theme for, for, the, for the, um, the series, 
is from a music video of a, of a song where the artist is creating this sculpture right, the, of a heart and then painting it and, and forming it very, very carefully, meticulously. Uh, and it's sort of a metaphor of what, what the, the life of a disciple is about. Jesus wants access to our heart. Right? This is really what it boils down to. to. To renew it, to refine it, in some cases to do surgery on it, which is the less comfortable bit. But that's true discipleship, if you like, being a disciple. Com- complete submission to Jesus' agenda, Jesus' leading in our life. So that's the invitation to you and I this morning. Say yes and then let him ask you the questions. That's becoming a disciple of Jesus and where we started last week. Now, that said, we, we don't want to just sit there and, and, and sort of wait, you know, in this airy-fairy way, well, what's next, Jesus? But dive into the Scriptures, closely observe Jesus' life, and ask, so what does it look like to model our lives after his? Not starting with the let's just try and do what he did and... So, you know, go backwards to now maybe we're somehow being with him, starting with being with him and letting the fruit flow out from that abiding. But we still have to observe what he got up to and what, what shaped his life and, and try to model after that. It makes sense to therefore start at the very beginning, the very beginning of the Gospels, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry and how that all began because that is so important so very, very important and significant because everything else Jesus did, every facet of his life that you see afterwards flows out of how it all began. No point in starting in the third year of his ministry. We need to start at the beginning. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at how it all began. His baptism, his testing in the desert, and his first declaration when he returned from the desert. Luke chapters, end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, different parts in the other um, accounts of his life as well. As you may have noticed, we're not having a um, separate Bible reading anymore where someone reads the scripture at the beginning. I'm going to read the passage within the sermon, but I want to encourage you, even though we have it on the screen, to um, bring your Bible to church. We haven't generally encourage this, although I think it's helpful whether you bring your Bible hard copy or you use it on your phone or you have a particular app you use to have that with you because it just helps us engage a little more. Anyone know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, rather than just like, oh yeah, it's on the screen and sort of you half, it half sinks in and it half doesn't. So I want to encourage you to bring your Bible. If you have it, one with you, your phone, tablet, whatever it is, or your actual Bible with you this morning, uh, turn to Luke chapter 3. And we're going to read in a second from verse 21. As you're turning there, if you're turning there, uh, the context here and what's happening before is that John the baptizer, I like to call him that rather than John the Baptist because he wasn't part of the Baptist denomination. He was was a baptizer. He had been baptizing many people in what was called a baptism of repentance. That was how he described it, right? Calling people to turn from their sins. They go under the water in a a symbolic thing of saying, I repent, I want to turn towards God, say sorry for my sin. But he says that he is just preparing the way for one who is coming, one who he says, this, that person's sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie, is so much greater than I. And this one who is coming, John the baptizer says, will baptize, that means immerse or dip, baptizo, 
with the Holy Spirit and with fire, not with water. So this is just the context of what's going on. At this point in the account, now we, we may know, oh yeah, he's talking about Jesus, Jesus is coming next, but we've not yet, if you're just reading this for the first time, we've not yet met the adult Jesus. We've just read about his infancy and young childhood so far. So we've not yet met the adult Jesus. He's not on the scene yet. Okay, That's the context. Then we get to verse 21. Let's just read two verses. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So nothing else has happened yet. Now, there's a, there's a lot in this scripture, by the way. I mean, there's the, the coming of the, the, the Trinity all in one place at the one time. There's the fact that Jesus was, was baptized. What does that all mean? But I'm gonna, we don't have time to look at all of that today. I just want to point this out. This is the beginning. We haven't met Jesus, the adult Jesus, yet. He's about 30 years old at this point. He's not drawing crowds yet. He's not causing a stir, stir not doing miracles, not recruiting disciples. John is the one getting attention. John's talking about the one coming after him, but nobody knows who this is yet. And what's the very first thing that people see happen with Jesus? They see and hear God the Father's declaration of love, his approval, his affirmation over Jesus. This one interaction at the very beginning, sets the scene for everything that will follow. All that Jesus will do, all that Jesus will say, the character he'll display, the love he'll show to others, the stuff he'll be angry about, the people he'll prioritize, all comes from this place of having a deep confidence in one thing that happens at the very beginning. His Father in heaven loves him and is pleased with him delights in him and is proud of him. The title of today's message is Becoming Confident in the Father's Love. We start here and everything else follows. Becoming confident in the Father's love. took me a long time, if I'm honest, to realize why this passage of Scripture is so significant and so important. Yes, what happens is, is significant. God declares his love over Jesus. The Father said, this is my son whom I love. However, it's not so much what happened as it is when it happened. Now, let me ask you this. What father or mother or parent of any kind wouldn't be proud of Jesus? <laughs> right? The perfect man sinless, kind, loving like no other, impacted the world more than any other person in human history, did miracles, changed the world, right? Any parent's going to go, I'm so proud of you. You did good, mate, (laughs) right? But how much of all of that has Jesus done at this point? 
Nothing. Absolutely zip. Other than run away from his parents when he was 12 and take up the family trade as most likely a stonemason, that's all we know at this stage. He's not done a whole lot. He was born, he took a unique interest in the scriptures as he grew up, and so far has lived this ordinary life, no miracles, no disciples, no world changing. And yet, the father boasts in front of everyone, this is my son, and I am pleased with him. How do you assume God thinks about you? If you're a Christian, hopefully you know and believe that God, your heavenly Father, loves you. Not only that, you know he's pleased with you. He delights in you. He couldn't be more proud of you. But where do you assume that that approval comes from? Is it the fact that you're his son or daughter adopted because of Jesus? Or... Is that approval and affirmation also a little bit because you've made him proud by the things you've done? Is God pleased with you just because? Or is God mostly pleased with you because you're living a God-honoring life? Except the little bits you're still working on and God's like, oh, we've got to work on that. The secret to the exceptional life that Jesus lives is that he did not for one minute not for one second, try to win the approval of his heavenly father or anyone else through what he did or didn't do. He was so confident that he already had that approval. That everything he did, everything he did was simply a response of gratitude and obedience from that point on. Now, most of you heard this before, maybe hundreds of times. Have you ever really examined, though, how you really perceive God's attitude towards you? In your even subconscious, how you think God thinks about you and looks at you? Have you ever really, truly examined that? I want to do an exercise maybe to help us with this, um, where we close our eyes, and I want you to imagine yourself in this scenario. So if we can all close our eyes, I'm going to talk you through just a, a setting and, um, and, and then at the end there'll be a question, right? So try to imagine, as your eyes are closed, try to imagine as best you can, you're an ordinary man or woman. You're growing up in ancient times. It's not, not like the technological times we live in. Um, and you grew up in your, your, your mum and dad's house and your dad is God. But I want you to just think of him as dad. This is your father. You've grown up in his house. He's got other children as well as you. So it's been an upbringing. And, and he's, he's God, so he's pretty rich. He's got a lot of things. He's got influence. But he, to you, he's dad. So you're his son or daughter. And because of the time, the culture you live in, it's very clear that one day you will get a share of your dad's inheritance and it's going to be significant because he's pretty well off and so imagine that one day you wake up and for whatever reason you decide you don't want to wait you realize look i've got a pretty good life now but if i take the inheritance now i'm going to be able to live a pretty good life and so you go to your dad 
and you say, I want my inheritance now, Dad, which was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead, but your dad goes, you know what, it's, I'll, I'll let you have it. He gives you your inheritance, a lot of money, and you take it and you leave home. Imagine, as best you can in that culture, in those times, just having a ball. You just go and party. You, you, in, you win the influence and, of, of so many people. People love you because you've got all this money and you're just having a great time. You've got an awesome house. You've got, you, you throw parties every like It's just awesome. You're living the good life, whatever that looks like to you. But... Unfortunately, you're not very good at keeping a close eye on your bank account and one day you realise, uh-oh, the money's run out. And in that day and age, you can't go to the local food bank, you don't have skills to get yourself a proper job, so you're just working on a farm, it's as best you could find, but you're starving, you're not earning enough to eat, eat properly, you're like, maybe I need to eat what the animals are eating, at least I'll get through. And you realise, I could keep living this way, this is a mess. Or maybe if I go back home, I've dishonoured my dad so much, but maybe if I go back home, he'll have just enough compassion to hire me at his farm and I'll at least be able to have three meals on the table. So you go home. You imagine you get to the driveway of your family home that you grew up in and your dad comes outside. Now here's the question. What do you see on your dad's face. Imagine as best you can. What do you see, after all that's happened, on your father's face? What's his attitude towards you? How does he treat you in this moment? Okay, you can open your eyes. So just sit with that for a moment, what, what you saw on your father's face. Now, some of you may have found it really hard to immerse yourself in that scenario because you realized I was placing you in the story of the prodigal son. And you know how the story goes. The father comes out after the son's run off, squandered all of his inheritance, comes back. The father comes out and he's delighted. His son is back. He just wants him back. There's no condemnation whatsoever. It's just pleasure. It's just joy. But if you were able, and maybe you were able, to be really honest and place yourself in that scenario, you're the prodigal son or daughter, and you return home, how did your father look at you? For many Many Christians, it's a look of disappointment. It's not pride or joy or pleasure or, or just relief. It's, it's disappointment. I know in my day-to-day life that I know the prodigal son story. I know what it teaches. I know what the scriptures say that God thinks about me, but I still feel I've got to prove myself to God. That he'll only be pleased with me if I do good things that will elicit that response of affirmation. And so I live this way far too often, trying to achieve something which will result in, I love you, son, I'm pleased with you. And we all do this to one extent or another. Why do we think this way? Why is this an issue for us? 
It's because our view of God is filtered through our experience of mothers, fathers, and father figures and mother figures. We've got to work to experience God as he really is because otherwise we assume by default he's like our father, our mother, or another parental figure who was in our life. Now, please know I'm not going after mums and dads today. Firstly, no parent is perfect. Don't I know that after becoming a dad? And the reality of our experience of growing up is that it's not just how our parents influence us. It's a complex web of relationships, parents, grandparents, relatives, teachers, coaches, people in authority of other kinds, friends, bullies, all of that together. I'm also not a psychologist and do not want to attempt to address how our childhood experiences shape all sorts of other things about us. But here's what I do know. Our God, our God is our heavenly Father. That is not about gender That is about his nature. We don't say God's a he because he's male. We say he's a he because he's a personal being, not an it. And yes, God is also like a mother in care and compassion and nurture and all of those motherly qualities, but he is, first and foremost, biblically speaking, father. And it is simply natural in our desire to know the invisible God because that's been placed within us, desire to know God. It's natural then that we take our image of our own father and our own mother and sometimes of others who influenced us like parents and think that is what God is like, even if it's subconscious. Now again, I'm not picking on mums and dads in any way. Some of us, me included, have our mums and dads and or dads in the room here. It's not about pointing fingers at them or or trying to address that. This is about recognising that sin and the fallen condition is real. We all fall short. And so therefore, we all have experienced love and approval from parents and other adults that was conditional or that was lacking or that was poorly expressed and most likely a combination, conditional, lacking and poorly expressed. But we need to then be able to ask the question, As a result of this brokenness we live in, do you feel that God is disappointed when you mess up? Do you generally just have a hard time believing God really likes you? Do you doubt that God really loves you because you don't seem to see evidence of it? Do you try to do things that make God, no, make you feel that God will be happy with you? And could one or more of those things be tied to the way love and approval was expressed to you by others and you're simply projecting that onto God? Now, this is that heart surgery stuff, right? This is that sort of as disciples of Jesus where we're saying yes to letting Jesus come in to our lives and deal with the stuff that's holding us back from an abundant life. And honestly, this issue is at the core of it. How do I see God? What does his face look like when he looks at me? To 
to sit with Jesus and let his life rub off on ours is to learn to see the Father's face the way Jesus did. Confident that he loves and is pleased with you. Jesus, to look at his life for a second, he, he, he never sinned. We know this. He, 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 did, he didn't do a single thing that was not for the good of others. He was complete and perfect love. Now, how, how does someone live that way? Did, was Jesus, did he just have this magic ability because, well, he's the son of God, so he, just, he didn't have the ability to sin. He just, he just coasted through and he was all perfect. No. The scriptures say he was in every way like us, tempted like us. So how does he live this way? To live every minute of every day confident in the love of his heavenly Father is the way he lived that way. Every minute of every day, totally reassured in his love, the love of his heavenly Father towards him, with no need whatsoever to receive that love and approval from another. That's why the whole thing starts with this scene. This is my son who I love. I'm, I'm pleased with him. This tells us something as well, though. If this sinless, perfect, loving, compassionate, joy-filled life of Jesus came out of a deep assurance and confidence in the Father's love, it tells us if you want to understand the mistaken view of God you might have, look at your sin. Again, this is the heart surgery stuff I don't like preaching on. Jesus had no sin because he was totally connected with the Father and knew his love. We sin because the relationship and the connection is broken and we misjudge his love. So what is your sin telling you about your mistaken view of God? We can actually take a step back and observe it and go, what's going on here? Let me give you an example. I'm sure this has happened to no one before, but let's say someone criticizes you about something that you'd done, you thought you'd done a really good job on and put a lot of effort into it. I'm sure that's not happened to anyone before, but just go with me, right? You've, done, you've put your heart and soul into something and someone criticizes you. How do you respond? could be one of a few ways. Let's say you snap back and you defend yourself, accusing that person of unfairly judging you. It might be that you respond that way because not being affirmed for a job well done to you means I'm not loved. And in hearing that criticism in someone else's voice, you fear the father's voice of love is going silent. And so out of fear, you force them to correct. No, no, I did do the right. I, I did this good. Uh, you're wrong. You push back. On the other hand, let's say you're criticized. Uh, you feel it's unfairly, but you shut down. Your response is just I shut down completely. You go silent. You hide. Maybe that response is because in the criticism you feel, you, you begin to believe that's the Father's voice too. That's God's voice too. Yeah, you're a failure. You could have done better. And so you just shut down. Let's, let's say you're, you're criticized about something and you, you smile. You maybe give a little smirk, <laughs> yeah, whatever. You, know, you just brush it off and you brush the person off and you walk away. Maybe in the back of your mind you feel 
like, yeah, well, the Father's not that interested anyway. God's not that interested. So who cares, man? I'll just do what I want, you know. Maybe in receiving criticism, go criticize someone else unfairly to make yourself feel better. You go indulge in some unhealthy behavior. You gossip to other people people about the person who criticized sharing half-truths. All of these are sinful responses, unhelpful, harmful responses to others and to us. What are they telling you about how you see your father's face, the father's face towards you? It takes guts to ask these questions, right? Not easy. But this is the only way we get to move closer to the kind of freedom and abundant life Jesus has for us, to be able to face a difficult circumstance and, and, and learn to instinctively respond with, my father loves me, absolutely loves me and is proud of me. He's pleased with me. So this situation isn't a threat. It's not going to change how God feels about me. If it's criticism or I mess something up or it's not like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? It's just another opportunity to know and experience his goodness in the situation and therefore respond without fear. Do you want to become confident in the Father's love and live every day secure in that at peace because of that, full of life because of that confidence. I know I do. Anyone else? <laughs> but I also know it means being honest about my sin. It means bringing it before God and, to be fair, bringing it before other people I can trust and saying, you know what, this is born out of fear and a mistaken view of my Father in heaven. I, I'm sorry Please change that in me, Jesus. Right? It means vulnerability. It means not just saying, well, I've got a bit of a temper. That's the way I am. <laughs> no, that's a sin born out, of a, born out of a lack of confidence in the Father's love for me, and I want that to change. And some of this will require other people being given permission to point out our sin in love. And that's really uncomfortable. I'm going to tell you, having, uh, having Kaya Leo around, who was on our staff for four months last year, was one of the most helpful things ever for me personally and I know for our, our team, maybe for some of you as well. Because as an outside voice coming from in from a different perspective, not having been at the Billabong before, um, we asked her to be honest about our flaws. We asked her to uh, be honest about my flaws, about things that needed to change in our church, things, things that I needed to shift. And she was honest. Sometimes she was brutally honest. And it helped me make some changes. It helped us make some changes and look at some things which I trust will bring positive results in the long term. But it was deeply, deeply uncomfortable because all those insecurities are like, Oh, in the open now. Peel back the layers. Let's do heart surgery kind of stuff. But you want to live from a place of confidence in the Father's unconditional and extravagant love for you, it will take some honesty. It will take some vulnerability. Let me encourage us, though, as we finish. There is, there is nothing better 
than learning to see the Father's face towards you as it really is. To be able to close your eyes and go, I was talking about this with a friend recently, to go, you play out that prodigal son story and then you see the Father's face and it's one of joy. <sighs> There's nothing better than that. Now, trust me, I've got a long way to go on this one. But when you learn to not let the sin around you, the brokenness around you, the stuff that you experience, when you learn to not let that bring out the sin within you, when you learn to respond to evil with love, because the love you know is stronger than the evil you experience. You know, when you when you live not to please, but really live because God's already pleased, that's freedom. And as we'll see in a few weeks' time, Jesus steps out of the desert to declare good news. And what is it? Freedom to prisoners. Do you want to be a prisoner to fear? Or do you want to be free in deep confidence of his love for you? Let's close our eyes and pray. Music team's going to come up. So we prepare to sing again. I want to, as we close our eyes this morning, I want to ask you to just, in your mind, identify one, one way that you approach God because it's what you experienced from someone else, maybe your parents, maybe another authority figure, a teacher, a coach, something that just naturally, subconsciously, you've projected onto God because that's what you experienced when you were younger. And while I want to encourage you to share this with a prayer partner or a friend, I'm not going to, you're not going to force you to do that, certainly not this morning. I want to recognize on the one hand that there's no quick fixes to this stuff. We just pray a prayer and it will disappear. But I also believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to come, even in moments like this, and bring healing. And so as you identify, what is that one thing that you... It's the way you approach God because it's what you experienced from someone else when you were younger. You try to please God with your actions. You hide from God when you mess up. You generally just don't have enough of an awe of God because you think he's disinterested. What is it? What's one thing, one way you approach God, one assumption about his face towards you? Just bring that to the forefront of your mind and I want to pray that God replaces that with his true nature. Heavenly Father, we all have projected things onto you and assumed something about your nature and your character which are untrue. Whether it's a desire to try and please you by what we do, an avoidance of you or a hiding, sort of a haphazard, sporadic relationship we have with you, whatever it is, Father, we bring this before you now. And Lord, for every single person in this room right now, I pray that your unconditional, perfect, compassionate, joy-filled love would replace that mistaken view of your identity in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come.
bring healing, bring a, tr- a change of mind, replace the false view of you that we have with a true view of your nature and your character. May we see you and experience you and know you as the Father running towards us with complete love. May we know you as you truly are. May that thing that has kept us in fear be removed in Jesus' name and instead replaced with a confidence of your unconditional love for us. I pray right now that we, that every person in this room would hear spoken over them the words spoken over Jesus. You are my son or daughter. I'm pleased with you. And I pray you would seal this, Lord Jesus. And that your voice would continue to be heard in our lives. Come Holy Spirit, fill us afresh with your love. The love of, your, of the Father. Amen.